Good morning. It's an honor to be here with you once again as we break this bread of life and learn more of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I was thinking about when we went through John, when the, when the Greeks went, I think it was Philip, and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And what a, what a request that is. And my prayer is that this morning that we would see Jesus through, his, through the lens of Scripture and that we would be ever more grateful for what he has done for us. We'll be in Romans 2, verses 11 to 16. So we've been working our way through Romans, and we've landed ourselves in, in a section from chapter 1, verse 18, that goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. And what we're learning is that there can be no assurance of salvation apart from the saving work of Christ. In this section, Paul is really harsher toward the Jews because they have a greater knowledge of the law. And there's a level of privilege or pride on their behalf because they're God's chosen people. The reality is that this, they're, they're more accountable because they're God's chosen people. On the other hand, we see that the Gentiles, also without excuse, because the law of God is written on the hearts of every man. We have a conscience. We know right from wrong. Even the most devout atheist knows right from wrong. The joke is that even Hitler probably loved his mother. So that this conscience testifies to the law of God that's, that's innate in every man. So both Jew and Gentile both need the gospel this glorious gospel of Christ. And just before Paul goes into this long dissertation in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that is, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then he goes on into the, this long Dissertation, starting in verse 18. The just shall live by faith. There's no amount of knowledge of the law that's going to save you. There's no amount of ignorance to the law that will excuse you. Every man is accountable. So last week we went through verses 6 through 11 in chapter 2 here. And I'm just going to read it to kind of refresh our minds it says he will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory honor and immortality but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath tribulation anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the jew first and also the greek but glory and honor and peace and everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You notice he says to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. That's pointing to the, the higher accountability that they have. And then verse 11, for, for God shows no partiality. This is important. And if you would, if you're able, please stand with me as we read. Romans 2, 11 to 16. 
this is the word of the living God. For there is no partiality with God, for as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For the, in the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these also not having the law are law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Merciful Father, as we break this bread of life, I just pray that you would nourish your people. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. Use me in spite of me. Lord, lend us the spirit that inspired this, this holy text to incline our hearts in, on it and that we may apply it. Lord, we love you and we praise your holy name. It's the matchless name of Christ, all of God's children said. Amen. So God shows no partiality. Or there is no partiality with God. So Deuteronomy says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. Job 34, 19 says, Yet he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. Acts 10, 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality. Ephesians 6, 9, And you masters do the same thing to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So we we understand that God is no respecter of persons based on anything, how much money you have, how little money you have, what kind of house you live in, the car you drive, uh, your, your status in, in society, in church, you, you're a politician. It doesn't matter. God's judgment is perfect. His, judge, his justice will be perfect. He's not in any way partial to anyone, again, for any reason. In the documentary, I think I'm saying it right, How, how Shall Then We Live or How Then Shall We Live, I don't Francis Schaeffer, if you've seen that, there's one scene where he's going through and there's, there's a picture of a lady that's blindfolded with a sword pointing at the Bible. And she's the judge, the righteous judge. And... It's showing her blindfolded because she can't see. She can't be influenced by who or what she's judging. And I haven't seen it, but they say that there's also another rendition of that same uh, painting or portrait where she has no hands, which I don't know how she would hold a sword, but that's signifying that she can't take a bribe, so that she can't be bribed. She can't see who she's judging. And that was to demonstrate the, the righteousness, the righteous judgment of God. So the most exalted creature ever made was Lucifer, and Lucifer exalted himself above, above God, exalted himself above the Creator, and he was then cast out of heaven. So this is one of the greatest creations of God, and God showed no partiality. He's like, you're done. That's what Isaiah 14 tells us. So you get to the, the, the Jews. They, they, they some, for some reason had this sense of entitlement 
because they possess the law. As in, we've got it and don't have to necessarily keep it. We have this knowledge. We're the enlightened ones, and we've got it all figured out. Might sound familiar. And then last week we learned about the justice for the Gentiles. The Gentiles were expecting grace because of their lack of knowledge, or they would expect grace because we didn't know better. In Luke 12, And the Lord said, who, is, who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will make him a ruler of all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, It begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him and an hour when he is not aware and will covet him in two and appoint him his portion to the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not yet, who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone whom as much is given from him, much will be required. And to him who as much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. So what he's saying here is with greater knowledge comes greater responsibility. That's what James tells us, um, to be swift to hear and slow to speak. This is wisdom. And he's talking about God's word. When, when, when you speak... God's word and preaching or teaching, you're, you're, you're more accountable. You're, you're doubly accountable is what the word tells us. And that shouldn't be taken lightly. So the Jews had knowledge but, but little wisdom. There's no application. Like, well, we've got the law, but we're going we're gonna to apply the law to all these people, yet we really don't do it. And it's, Christ dealt with that. You call them hypocrites and whitewashed sepulchers. You wash the outside of the cup, the inside of the cup's still dirty. It's not much different today of the, you know, some of the most knowledgeable people that have came and gone from this church that seemingly had a head, they had a head knowledge, right? And we were very impressed and, and they could talk about things of the scriptures and, and expound things and then come to find out they're not living it. I mean, I had a lady, um, a gentleman that, that came here for a little while and he worked with a lady in the congregation, and after he left, she started telling me all these things in his language at work and the way he talked about women, and I was furious. I said, why? Why didn't you tell me? we got to know these things. And she was embarrassed to even tell me. But, and I'll tell you guys, if something like that's happening, you, you tell us. We guard this. We guard this pulpit. I, I was thinking earlier, I think Paul would drag somebody out of the pulpit and drag them outside if... If they said something in error, and, and he's probably the most guarded person when it comes to this, and we, that's right, I got an amen, that's a, all right, I'll try not to get puffed up with pride there, but I was having a conversation with Josh, you know, it's like, well, okay, the pulpit needs to be protected, right, we don't want false teaching coming from this pulpit, because it's going to, it's going to contaminate the hearer, and it's going to lead people astray, but and we were talking, I said, you know, we don't want 
someone in this pulpit that's going to bring judgment upon themselves for speaking falsehood and, and bring down greater condemnation on themselves. So it's not just protecting you guys, which is more important, but protecting the speaker. So, and we had, you know, we've had people that come and, and you know, they, they join the church and they're like, hey, you know, if you need, if you need me to preach, you know, it's been a couple of weeks of being here. And it's like, well, you know, we'll, we'll kind of work through some things. And, you know, we've got um, some people writing out sermons and we're looking at them and they, you know, giving opportunities to others to, to stand before you guys. And, and But it's, it's a process and we want to be careful, right? So the Jews had this head knowledge with little application and they were under this stricter judgment as I've mentioned. And the, the Gentiles are ignorant, supposedly. You get to verse 12, it says, For as many have sinned without the law will also perish the law. And as many have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. So with, if you don't have the law, you're going to perish without the law. Here we have the judgment of the, the unbelieving Gentiles, and, and they don't have the law. It does not mean that they're exempt. I, uh, I remember my first speeding ticket. I got pulled over. The cop gives me a ticket, and I was like, I'll just go to court. Play dumb. You know, like, well, I didn't know the speed limit changed from 55 to 35, and he didn't have a whole lot to say. He just said, ignorance of the law is no excuse. <laughs> All right. I represented myself and obviously had a fool for a client and went on and paid my fine. But I learned something. The ignorance of the law is no excuse. You can't, you can't claim that. The, the Gentiles, are, they're not going to be able to claim that. They will be judged on their limited knowledge of God. In Psalm 28, Verse 4 says, give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve. They have some knowledge because it's written on their hearts. We see that unbelievers will be judged according to their deeds, obviously. So this word in the Greek is apolome. It means to destroy but not annihilate, right? If you annihilated someone, they'd be gone. To destroy you get it? Punishment. Eternal punishment. So we know all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, according to Romans 3. And each person is without excuse as God has revealed himself to everyone in his creation. Romans 1, 19 and 20. There's, you can't claim ignorance. And then Paul turns to the Jews again and says, And as many have sinned with the law will also be judged by the law. So all sin will be judged, and, and, the, and the Jews are not exempt because they know the law, and it's far from it, like I've mentioned. There's a greater condemnation coming for those who simply just have a head knowledge. So they're judged according to their greater knowledge. And then now I got some worse news. Not only do we have the law, we possess this knowledge of the law. On top of that, we have the gospel. We've got the whole picture. All of it. We're more accountable than those unbelieving Jews then. In Matthew 11, 
verse 20 to 24, he said, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. Because you did not repent, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So these people had the truth. They sat in front of Christ. They saw his mighty works. They saw the gospel, the, the epitome of the gospel, the great rabbi in front of them, yet they rejected it. He said that it would be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment. We understand that Sodom was a, an awful place. All that reject Christ will spend eternity in hell. That's the long and short of it. Your greatest works are as filthy rags. And all that spend this eternity in hell will not receive the same punishment. The worst of eternal punishment is reserved for those that wasted the greatest spiritual opportunity. Those that had the greatest opportunity will suffer greater than those that never heard. They're, faraway tribe that everybody likes to talk about theirs is not going to be as bad as the ones that heard the truth Hebrews 6 4 and 6 for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to the renew them again a to repentance since they crucify again themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. In short, if you're enlightened to the truth and you fall away, it is impossible to be re-enlightened, as in crucifying Christ again, putting him to an open shame, and shaming that work that was already accomplished. Can true believers fall away? Let me say this, absolutely. Can they fall away to an extent where people would look at them and say, they're gone. Um, it would be only for a season for a true believer to kind of stumble and, and fall. Uh, who knows how long that season is? I don't, I don't have a clue. So in hearing this word of God, it's the greatest opportunity as opposed to never hearing this great truth, right? Unless you fail to honor it in repentance, then you're much worse off. You're more accountable because you know this truth. You've heard this truth. Josh was telling me of a professor when he gave someone the gospel, and if they, they rejected it, he would say, now I have to tell you this, you are more accountable now because you've heard the truth and you've rejected it. That's a scary thing, or it should be. It's not normally, I guess, to an unbeliever. So this truth of God, either it either condemns a person or it convicts them unto salvation. It's like, okay, yeah, I am a sinner, and I, I do need... I do need a Savior. I do need Christ, and I'm going to repent. I'm going to put my trust. I'm going to put my faith in Christ. So we have this law. We have the gospel. You know, we, we bowed our heads at one time and said that prayer, and we, we got our King James Bible and patted on the back and said, your soul is saved. Amen. 
And then you got, I'm going to tell you right now, there's not an ounce of truth to that unless, verse 13, for not hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but doers of the law will be justified. Not hearers. Not hearers only that are, are the righteous. You know, I can hear all kinds of things. MacArthur points out that Paul does not use the word here for hearing in the usual sense, as is you can understand and, and comprehend. He uses the word akuates, which implies a person who is in the business of listening, right? So it's kind of like when your wife's talking and you're, you're hearing it, and she says, are you listening to me? I've become really good at repeating back what she said, even though I might not be listening. So a professional hearer, if you will, right? So he goes on to say it's like a college student. His primary purpose is to listen to the teacher's instructions. He's going to be tested on it. He's going to have to, to be able to apply this, right? All you wives are looking at your husbands, aren't you? <laughs> so they're going to be tested. So you, you, and you can also audit a class. You can take a college class, and you don't have to take a test. You can just go to simply learn, and you don't have to be accountable for, for anything. You're not going to be tested. The Jews were auditing. Many Christians or so-called Christians are auditing. They, they, they hear it. You know, they, they, they even may make a profession of faith, but their lives really doesn't, don't reflect it because they're not, they're not doers of the law. So it says, let's look at James 1. Or I'll look at James 1. You guys listen. James 1, 21 through 25, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For as anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it. And is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. So James switches. He uses the, the same word for a coates, or the professional here, the auditor. If a man hears instructions but doesn't put it into practice, right? Wisdom is the application of knowledge. So it's like seeing yourself in the mirror and you're dirty and you don't clean your face off and you walk outside and you forgot that you're even dirty and everybody's looking at you and your face is dirty. It's the same when we look in the law of liberty and we don't, we don't have this desire to, to make any changes in our lives because the Spirit of God would, would be applying that law that we're looking at face-to-face -face with the law, applying it to our hearts and making us want to be better. So hearing the law and the gospel and not applying it leaves you filthy in the sight of God. Those that have the superficial word with this superficial knowledge are self-deceived. They, they have a knowledge that lacks wisdom. A lack of wisdom breeds disobedience. Disobedience proves that the, this person does not trust in God. You know, you got, this area is, is rampant. You know, everybody's a Christian around here. It's like, I believe in God. Well, what do you believe about him? You know, it's, this, is, this is one of the hardest places in the world to witness to someone because everybody... Well, I believe in God, and, you know, I believe in Jesus, that's, and that's the extent of their theology. I just, well, I acknowledge his existence or their existence. 
the existence of God is not saving faith. If that was all it was, then everybody's, everybody's safe. So Matthew 7 24 to 27, it says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. It did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. So the opposite of wisdom is foolishness. The doers of the law are the ones that respond in faith. The law convicts us. Keeping this law is impossible. We understand that. In Galatians it says that the law is a tutor. It drives us to understand that that we need the Savior. True doers come to, to faith in Christ. If you could keep the law, you'd be justified. You'd be justified in the sight of God. There'd be no need for a Savior. So in James 2.20, we're seeing this kind of played out. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified, justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see the faith that was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, and he was called a friend of God? You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. This obedience to the law is, a, is accomplished by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So down in verse 26, it's interesting. It says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, faith is without, without works is dead also. Now, I have a problem, Lord forgive me if I'm wrong, that this translation where it says spirit, it's, it's lowercase. And almost every, every instance in the Bible where it's, it's dealing with the Holy Spirit, it's, it's uppercase S, meaning the Holy Spirit. If you look at the Greek, it's the, the Greek word for spirit is pneuma, and it also means breath of the lungs. Almost it's breathing, right? And... And James, as a matter of fact, as he is with his writings, I think what he's saying is that works are as natural to the believer as breathing. Faith without the, as, as the body without the breath is dead, faith without works is dead also. So this is a natural thing, right? So breathing is, we don't have to think to breathe. It's involuntary. We can control our breathing. That's when we look in the, the law of liberty and we see that law and we can kind of understand it and it inclines our hearts and we have a little bit of, 
I don't know how much, but we have a, a, an act in that and cleaning ourselves up some. It's not that we must. It's not that we must do these things. There's the, the, the lordship crowd says we must, we must. Grace says that we will. We've got to be careful here. The lordship crowd, they will use the scripture to say that, that if we are saved and Jesus is Lord, that we must. You've got to perform you got to do these things or, or else you got to prove yourself. And it becomes a, it becomes a uh, you, you look at yourself and you're, you're, you're failing. You see yourself as a failure because these people are telling you must and then the scriptures are saying you must. But how do you deal with this? It's all grace. And Jesus himself, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And if we click to point this out, you must because Jesus said, keep my commandments. Do this. you got to do it. Performance, you got to perform. We know it's impossible. So how do you how do you deal with these these passages, right? If you go and look at the Greek word for keep, it's terao. It means to take care of or attend to, to keep into the state of which it is, right? Think of it as keeping a garden. You're tending to a garden. Attend to my commandments. Pay attention. Give heed to my commandments. Christ knows you can't keep the commandments or he, he wouldn't have had to die if we could. In Philippians, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think of this of you all because I have put you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you are all partakers with me of grace it doesn't say he that began a good work in you and if you if you keep the law and you dot your I's and cross your T's and He's going to bring it to fruition. It says, he that began a good work in you will bring it to fruition. You can't. You can't. You're along for the ride. I hate, I don't really like that term, let go and let God, but if it ever applied to me right here, let God have his way with you. It's grace. It's all grace from, from beginning to end, no matter what anyone tells you. Ephesians 2. I think Romans 9 is the only one that rivals Ephesians 2 here. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are all his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's all grace. The works of this byproduct of that, as we learn in verse 10, grace, salvation, faith. The faith to believe is a gift. Contrary to what the Armenian would tell you, he would say, I have faith. I conjured up this faith in within myself. He will do this work because he is Lord. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. You can't, you can't keep the law. He could. He could keep the law, and he did. He took our sin, and he, he took the wrath of God for our sin. He grants us faith, and we believe. 
We're justified by works, absolutely Christ, 100% Christ's work. Now back to the Gentiles. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are law unto themselves, who show the work of the law written on their hearts, in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or excusing them. Well, they don't have special revelation. They weren't God's chosen people. They, but they prove, in fact, they do possess the law because they do what God desires. They don't even know why. They, they would agree that murder is wrong or anything contained in the law of God. They're without excuse. The word conscience is an interesting word. It's, con, it's, it's Latin. It's conscientia. Which, if, you look, if you think of the word omniscient, Omniscience, conscience, with science, with knowledge. It words scientia means knowledge. Science, the word science is derived from scientia, which means knowledge, and until all these people hijacked it and for their own means and tell you to, to trust the science for whatever agenda they're pushing, but science just literally means knowledge. So with knowledge, conscience. If we take Romans 1, 19 and 21 and Verses 14 and 15 here, you can see that, that God really doesn't believe in atheists. No one's without excuse. The law of God and his invisible attributes are, are seen in creation. It's written on their hearts. We live in a world that's ripe with subjectivism. You, the truth is subjective. Or they'll say all truth is subjective, and they, they just made a, an objective truth claim which would be a self-repeating thing. All truth cannot be subjective. An atheist once told me that he was more moral than God because if he saw, I'll leave out exactly what he said, but he saw a certain atrocity happening, and you know, if God can see everything, that, that God should stop this evil. And, and if he could see it, he would stop it. And you know, I said, well, what are you doing to actively stop this? Are you going out and pursuing this? You know, and... I then asked him, I was like, so you believe in God, so that's a good start. We're on to something now. He's like, no, I don't believe in God, so well, why are you saying something that doesn't exist is immoral? And I asked him why this particular instance is wrong. What, what are you appealing to to tell me that what you're accusing God of not doing anything about, what are you appealing to to tell me that it's wrong? What, you have nothing. Like, if we're all a product of highly evolved pond scum, why is it? Why is it wrong if I just kill you? I mean, is it, it just is, you know, it says. So that's the, that's the law of God on, on his heart, his conscience bearing witness to the law of God, even though he denied it, he's suppressing this truth. He was using it and applying God's law. He was using God's own law to call God amoral. The irony there are many, many unbelievers that are morally upright people. The most devout atheists will tell you it's wrong to steal and kill and lie and, you know, commit adultery. Most of them, I guess, I mean, adultery would probably be like on the outer fringes of their morality. Uh, they likely love their parents, you know. 
faithful husbands and wives, I mean, some of them, I mean, just like anybody else, they have their issues. They can be generous, you know, they can, they can help the needy just as well as we can, and some do. And do y'all remember the good, good without God movement? A bunch of atheists went around doing good things to prove that you could be good without God, even though they were applying the law of God just to be good to anyone. <laughs> okay. Absolutely, absolutely capable of good deeds. Our judicial system is modeled after the law of God. Even the remote, remotest tribes that never heard the word of God, they will have a, a system of ethics that, that closely resemble the law of God. Even though they, they've never heard. Don't, don't know anything about the law of God. Their conscience bearing witness. People's consciences will vary upon, depending on how much knowledge they have, how much of the word they've been exposed to. The conscience of the, the child of God will be operating on a much higher plane than, than someone that's not a believer. Because we have the Holy Spirit working within us, our conscience. That's the Holy Spirit guiding us through our conscience continually. When we, when we sin, we, we willingly neglect this knowledge of God. We, if you want to do the trust of science, you're, you're, going to, you're sinning against science right there. You're sinning against knowledge. After a while, we can become numb. We can't, we can't, can't feel the, the warning signs. In First Timothy, verses, no, chapter four, one and two. Now the the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared as with a hot iron. Cauterized is the idea. They can't feel it. You, can't, you see these serial killers, and they're like, well, it says he has no conscience. His conscience is seared. It's cauterized. He can't feel it. Paul Washer says don't don't worry about the atheist who rejected the gospel in hell don't don't be concerned as much for him as you would the false teachers that stood before the children of God and led them astray for theirs is a much worse condemnation they will pay a greater price because with great knowledge came great responsibility and they neglected their conscience was seared as with a hot iron they went chasing after their own selfish desires leading the children of God astray. Our conscience is our guide. All heard that. Romans through. Let's go to Romans 13. Or I'll go there. Therefore, you must be subject not only 
Oh, it's 13 verse 5, I'm sorry. Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Our new desire is to please God. His law, it goes from a curse to a delight. We delight in the law of God as believers. We, we have this new desire. Our conscience is either approving or disapproving of whatever we're getting ready to encounter or what we're thinking or what have you. It will convict us. This new desire is a struggle sometimes, that, that conscience bearing witness to the truth of God. And it's like Paul says, I, I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I should be doing. It's, a, it's that inner struggle that a believer has. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. This is the final judgment that Paul is speaking of. The Lord who knows all things will judge the motives of each person's actions. In First Chronicles. Actually, let's go to Psalm. Psalm 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. It doesn't get any clearer than that. An open book to God, everything he knows. He knows you better than you know you. Sometimes, unfortunately, right? We think of, we think of King David and Morally speaking, he, he failed quite a bit, as we all do. Adultery and murder alone were, were just cause for, for taking his life. But David was different. He, he devoted his life to the service and worship of God. His inclination was toward the things of God, even though he fell into great sin in his mind and his, his heart's desire were the things of God. He was confessing and throwing himself at God's feet and, and crying out to God, oh, for, forgive me, Lord. He didn't, he never said I sinned against a person. He said even though he murdered, he said against, only, against you, Lord, only I have sinned, begging God for forgiveness. And God called him a man after his own heart. And great, David is probably the greatest Old Testament Example of, of God's graciousness. I, I really can't think of anything else. And, and on the other hand, you have someone like Judas who, who walked with our Lord. He served alongside our Lord. He sat at the feet of the greatest rabbi that ever walked the face of the earth and learned firsthand. Sat at the feet of Christ for three and a half years. Christ expounding the truths of God teaching everyone the way. He saw all these miracles. He saw everything. Externally, he was probably morally upright, you know, to, to look at him. And, well, he, you know, he's got it figured out. He's, he's a disciple, and he walks with Christ. He, he even holds on to the money bag. He must be, you know, trustworthy. Not even close. He, he, was, he was self-centered and only interested in Serving himself. 
He hated the things of God, despised them, sold Christ out for 30 pieces of silver. In both of these men's lives, open books, you could, God could see everything. And they're both judged accordingly. We see David received mercy and grace, and Judas received justice. In both, li- in both lives, justice was served. Christ took the justice David deserved, and Judas still paying for it. So God, he's, he's the ultimate impartial judge. And he will repay everyone according to their deeds. And Christ being the standard by which God judges the secrets of men, he, he's the embodiment of the gospel, or the, the law. Christ kept the law perfectly. He embodied what it is to be the law. So we have the Jew that would say we have the law and we are justified, and we have the, the Gentile saying, I never heard of this law. Both fallen short of the glory of God. Both deserve his wrath. Apart from Christ, both are utterly without hope. And so how do you deal with that? This perfect and partial judge made a way. Christ took our sin. God, in his ultimate act of impartiality, you realize he crushed his own son. The, the innocent one. Because our sin was upon him. That's sin must be punished, right? Our sin is on him, now it must be punished. It was the plan of God all along, but now it must be punished. And he showed no partiality in crushing his son. And consider this, dear friends. Christ is the only person that has walked the face of the earth that understood the full measure of what God's wrath is. He's the only person that could ever know it. This side of eternity. He perspired blood because of the great stress that it brought upon him because he knew what he was about to face. Yet God crushed him. He willingly took it. Isaiah 53 tells us that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Out of the Father's great love, he punished the only innocent one, his son, on your behalf. He poured out his wrath, the wrath that we all deserve, on his son. Let's pray. Oh, merciful Father, we thank you so much for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for the justice. We don't often think of that, but that justice was served, and Christ took it. Now we are seen as righteous. You clothe us in the righteousness of your own son that we may be called children of God. Lord, let us not be without excuse. Lord, I pray that if anyone here does not know you, that today would be their birthday into the kingdom of heaven. Lord, grant them repentance, the faith to believe. Lord, apply these truths to our hearts and let you be glorified forever in it. We love you and we praise your holy name. It's in Christ's name we all pray. Uh, God's children said.